in a week's time will be hopefully checks my watch finished with the first carol service and a couple of hours away from the second carol service starting um why do we do these carol services why do we produce flyers so that we can invite people our goal is to present the wonderful truth of why christians have celebrated christmas for centuries and why christmas will be celebrated this year by us and in some way by the vast majority of our neighbors and by much of the world our hope over the course of these two carol services is that many people will come and hear through the readings through the songs through the prayers and through what's said from the front that people will hear the wonderful story of the king of a war against evil that has been uh, won of a conquering king who comes in and defeats the enemy of a creator who has rescued his fallen creation of a judge who has mercy on the fallen of a prince who brings peace to a war-torn land christmas is about a wonderful wonderful truth about a wonderful king and so what we're doing today is really prepping ourselves for next week because we want to be a church who fling wide the doors to those that we know to those that god has placed us around to say come and let us tell you about jesus and that's what we hope that next sunday will be we pray and hope that people will come and we pray and hope that we as a church will invite people and some will come and some might not and even as we were thinking on uh, tuesday night at our prayer meeting we pray that we'll have opportunities not just in a formal setting but also in an informal setting to say this is why christmas is amazing And all I want to do for the next few minutes is encourage us again that Christmas is wonderful, brilliant, amazing news. And as I do that, I want to ask you, how are you feeling about Christmas? Not the presents, not the food, not the possible ramifications of COVID restrictions, but how do you feel about this story of the king of god become man do you still believe it are you still thrilled by it and so we're going to turn to isaiah chapter 9 in preparation for that first carol service where we've invited families with children and people are going to come dressed up apparently as shepherds and wise men i am not but you feel free to And we're going to look at this, this well-known, if you've ever been around a carol service at Christmas or church at Christmas, you'll probably have heard these words read from Isaiah chapter 9. And I just want to give us some reasons for our hearts to be thankful, but also some reasons to go, this is something I want to share with other people. So four headlines for us. The closeness of the dark is real, not imagined. The consequences of the light are profound. 
The character of the light is compelling. And the certainty of the light is sure. And what we're going to do at the end of our time together, before we sing again and and close out like we normally do, we're going to spend some time praying. And I'll explain a little bit more about that. But we want to ask that God would be at work. And so this will feel maybe a little bit different. If you're nervous about praying, don't, don't worry about it. Nobody's going to make you pray. But we're going to have an opportunity for us all to pray together. But let's jump into Isaiah 9. The closeness of the dark is real, not imagined. Isaiah is speaking approximately 700 years before the events of Bethlehem and the coming of this child Jesus. And he's speaking to a nation that is divided and a nation that is in many ways destined to be doomed because of their continual turning away from God. They're up and down. They turn and turn back. And he picks up a metaphor. He tells a story about light and dark. That's why we've entitled our Christmas, Hope Dawns at Christmas, because that's Isaiah's language. He looks into a country and into a people, and he says, you can be explained by light and dark. And he says... The darkness is real. That's why we read, Claire read to us from Isaiah 8, the preceding verses to the normal Christmas passage. Because in that passage, Isaiah is defining what darkness is for us. So Isaiah 8 verse 20 says, Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. There is a real darkness that comes from ignoring God's word. From not subjecting our lives to what God has said is true and good and right. And so Isaiah paints the picture. He says, here's what happens when people turn away from what God has said. They live in darkness. One of the commentaries says this, the prevailing motif is darkness. For which Isaiah uses three different words. They love the darkness. The darkened rooms in which they consulted. The shrouded dead. And divine justice has given them what they loved. Darkness all around. And a dark future ahead. The nemesis of abandoning their God and refusing his testimony and law. Just look down to the last verse of chapter 8. They will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Sometimes you use the phrase about people painting a, a dark picture. Well, Isaiah's taken that to the nth degree. Because he looks on a people who have turned away from God and he says, this is the state. You can't see a thing. And you are hopeless. And this darkness is real. Isaiah, despite writing two and a half thousand years ago, could be talking about our time, couldn't he? About the hopelessness and a darkness that many face. He could be talking about the young people, the the newest generation. Those who 
despair at the seemingly irreversible damage humanity has done to our planet. Perhaps you're one of those who would mock somebody like Greta Thunberg, and this is not a discussion on climate change. But you've only got to listen to how she describes her own emotions when she looks out at the world, and you hear the, the gloom, the despair. And she typifies her generation. And they typify that, that cosmic darkness. That all things are headed downhill. There's no way of turning this ship around. But it's not just young people who despair. Who are, who are marked by darkness. Perhaps it's an older generation that more keenly feel the inner darkness who live with profound regret and guilt and shame at the things that they've done or or not done that inner gloom of the soul darkness inside darkness outside in other people darkness cosmically and this darkness that Isaiah describes the people of his day living in. It was real then and it's real now. So much of our world could be described as a people who are without hope. Imagine for a second that the shape of this message that I'm giving this afternoon is, is a Christmas tree. This first point is about the darkness of the green branches on a Christmas tree. The dark background. But as Isaiah sets that for us, the reality of the darkness and the closeness of the darkness, he then talks about the dawn. So the second point, the consequences of the light are profound. Look back down again at your Bibles if you've got it open. Look down at verse... Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You can see the picture, can't you? The sun coming up on a dark land and those first beams shining out across. Well, what is it? What is this light? What are the consequences of this light? Well, three things. Isaiah brings out for us joy and freedom and peace. Joy that comes from success and provision, from having and from winning almost. An overflowing fullness. He pictures the people at the time of harvest as they have reaped in all that they have grown. And they've got to the end of the season and the weather has not destroyed their crop. And so they're bringing it into the barns. And there's, a, there's just a, a bubbliness of the people. Because they have food. And they have resources. And they have the grain that they can sell to buy the other things that they need. This joy, this infectious, overflowing fillness that they have. You know, that sense of, of possession. And it's bubbling up from their hearts to their mouths and they can't help but, but smile. It's good, they might say. 
And then he moves on to a second picture, a picture of freedom. A people in Israel who have known enemies and oppressors will be freed. The shackles will be taken off. The doors will be opened. They'll be able to go out. And the things that used to oppress them, these rods, these yokes, they will be broken and shattered. It's a picture of not just temporary change, but complete and lasting freedom. And then thirdly, it brings a picture of peace. This is a a continuation of the, the freedom idea. But he says, there'll be no more war. If you read the Bible and the, the, the history of this people, Israel, it's a history that is littered with enemies. The Midianites are mentioned here, but you could, as you look through the pages of the Bible, you could also mention the Amorites and the Ammonites and Edom and Syria and Assyria and the Philistines. And into a people that know all of that. And a country that has been surrounded by people who have attacked them at every course and every step of their history. Isaiah says, every warrior's boot that is used in battle and every garment that is rolled in blood will be fuel for the fire is destined for burning. Complete and lasting peace. I think if we were reading Isaiah 9 these days, we'd have John Lennon singing in the background, war is over. And that's the idea. But to a people that have just been marked in their entire history by war after war. And perhaps we don't understand that if you're born in the UK in the 21st or 20th century. But maybe if you lived in another part of the world, or maybe you're from another part of the world, and you would just think... Wow, to have that promise that there would be no more war. The consequences of the light, joy, freedom, peace. That's quite the headlining trio. Now let's just go back into when we were thinking about the darkness. That internal and external and cosmic dimensions to this. Think about joy think about a joy that goes over all people so it's not just you walk into a room and there's one happy person and one sad person but think about a joy that is impacting all the people or think about a peace that is not just peace for us But a peace, as one of the hymns says, that goes from shore to shore. Again, 21st century UK, we're not particularly in danger of of war. But if we look elsewhere in the world, even right now, there are countries and peoples who are war-torn. Torn apart, families from families, people torn apart. The light has dawned and there is peace. 
that will go from shore to shore. So if we're thinking about our Christmas tree and we're thinking about the dark green branches, well, now we're getting putting the decorations on. We're putting the tinsel and the baubles and the, you know, the, the other decorations, the random ones. And they are peace and joy and freedom. But Isaiah is going to take us even deeper. And he's going to talk to us now about the character of the light. The character of the light is compelling. Point three. The darkness is real. And the promises of the light are so needed. But beyond that, they, they are exceeding our wildest dreams in a dark world that there would be a place and a life of joy, freedom and peace. Well, if that's true, the question must be asked, what is this light? What is this dawning that Isaiah is speaking to the people in Israel and speaking to us? What is the, the additional ingredient that makes all the difference? In the same way that you put yeast into the dough and it will make the bread rise. What is, what is that thing? What is that player who you add to your team and you go from awful to awesome? Isaiah 9 verse 6 describes the light like this. For to us a child is born. For to us, a son is given. See, the question was wrong. It's not what is the light, but who is the light? Who is he that comes that changes everything? But he's a human, firstly. A child born in this world. And here Isaiah echoes back a couple of chapters where he's made another promise, another Christmas promise about how the virgin will give birth to a child and they will call him Emmanuel. A child is born, a boy, a son. And this child is going to succeed where every other human has failed because he's going to bring about peace. And justice and righteousness in increasing measures. And he will not fail. History is littered with men and women who have risen up for a time. And improved things for a people for a time. But they've done it in an incomplete way. Their resources have fallen short. Sometimes as bluntly as they've died. And they can no longer have an effect. This child is human, but this child is also divine. This child will be called the mighty God. But it's not enough to say, when we think about who the light is, to say, well, he's both God and man. That's important. But what sort of God, man, is he? What is the the centre of him? What will he be called? Isaiah takes up the idea here that a name 
corresponds with the nature. That people are named or things are named because of what they do and who they are. Not just because their parents quite liked it or because somebody happened to be on TV with that name in the previous nine months. Why do you call a sticky toffee pudding a sticky toffee pudding? Because it's gloriously sticky. That's the idea. And so, verse 6, and he will be called. And this is his nature. This is the, if you cut through him, this is what you'll find in the middle of this child. This light. Imagine if somebody sat down next to Jesus. For he is the light. And they'd sat down next to him. Maybe they sat next to him in school. And then sat next to him on the bus, if there were first century buses. And they'd got to know him. And they said to him, You've, you don't actually know this guy's name. What would you call him? You've been alongside him. You've, you, you've smelt him. You've heard him talk. What would you call him? What name would you give him that matches his nature? Well, if that's you, if you've been given that task, you will want to mention his supernatural wisdom. That the words he speaks make sense. Not just of the moment, but of all the moments. And they bring clarity, not confusion. And so you call him the wonderful counsellor. And then you will think of his strength and his control and his power. Leading and commanding in the way that only God has led. And so you will call him mighty God. And you will notice the ongoing and long-lasting care and protection. That knowing him and being loved by him gives. And so you will call him everlasting father. And you will experience a restfulness that knowing him and being around him brings to you and that through him that you will have a sense of rightness with God and even more than that but because of the time you've spent with him that you will be able to have friendships with all sorts of people who in any other universe you'd find a thousand reasons to really just walk by on the street and so you will call him and give him the name the prince of peace this is the character of the light this is who jesus is the powerful gentle protective refuge giving peacemaking man who was also god this is the jesus we hold out to the world This is the Jesus that we want people to meet when we invite them to our carol service. Somebody who is utterly deserving of those names. Somebody who we could say, I know of nobody better who you need to meet and who you need to know. And maybe even this afternoon... The question for you is not about inviting somebody else. It's, do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? Would you name him these things? 
Maybe it's time for you to look past the caricatures of Jesus that you've heard about from others and you need to come and say, Jesus, who are you? Just being in church doesn't mean you know Jesus. Why don't you come and look for yourself? Final thing. See, the certainty of the life, the light is sure. You notice that this prophecy, these words that Isaiah speak in, are written in the present tense. He's writing 700 years before Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. And yet he's writing these things with a certainty that they are already true. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and you have increased their joy. Isaiah speaks with a certainty, doesn't he? And the certainty of the light is sure for us. Listen to the last line. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's almost as if Isaiah is saying, I know you think this is too wonderful to be true. I know you can see a thousand reasons why this might not come about. And so he adds this line, he says, God's certain promise is that this will happen. The certainty of the creator who made all things is going to bring this about. And he's going to do it in an unlikely place. Galilee. He's going to honour Galilee by the way of the sea. A place that's far away from where you'd expect the good things to be happening and the important people to be. He's going to do it in an impossible way. Isaiah 7, the virgin will give birth. He's going to do it with an unlikely entrance. God is going to enter this world, not as some great conquering king with a fanfare. It's not like when Aladdin comes in as Prince Ali. And there's elephants dancing and people singing. And it's, no, it'll come as a child, a baby born, laid in a manger. There'll be no great entrance theme like the Marvel heroes have. But there will be a quiet, glorious rejoicing as the angels will declare to shepherds, And tell them that the saviour has been born. That God's unwavering, passionate commitment to bring hope to those walking in darkness means that we can be sure that he will do this. And we know more than the original hearers. We know that 700 years later, he did come. The light dawned. And we got to see, and we get to see more of what that meant as Jesus interacted with normal people and brought them hope. As he interacted with broken people and healed them. As he interacted with people who had failed and he brought them forgiveness. We know not just the Christmas story, but we know the gospel story. How The child who became a man established peace 
whilst upholding justice and acting in complete righteousness. And then he accomplished it all by sacrificing himself in the place of sinners. This great God man humbled himself to death. Death on a cross. He gained peace for those that he loves, for his people, and ultimately a peace that will cover the world by subjecting himself to violence at the hands of those he had created. This is the certainty of the light. Jesus came and Jesus won. And Jesus even now is in heaven and one day will return as we were reminded again and again in our series in 1 Thessalonians. And as we think about next week and beyond that, as we think about the people God has placed us around and our desire to share this great, glorious good news with them, behind it is this. God's unwavering, passionate commitment to seeing this through. That people who are currently in darkness will walk in the light. That those who have turned from God's word and God's way will turn back to know him and love him and live for him through Jesus, the light of the world.